Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney. I'm a senior reporter at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for everyone who needs to know what's going on in the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each month we'll be delving a little deeper into some of the conversations being had in our community and learning more about exciting innovations and probing some of the issues we're facing. Today I'm going to be exploring the future of fundraising. Figures from the Charities Aid Foundation show that between 2013 and 2017, total giving in the UK remained remarkably stable, consistently coming in at around £10 billion a year. However, issues like declining response rates to cold appeals and reduced volume of sign-ups by direct debit are causing concern. There's even an argument that the rapidly changing landscape might mean fundraising departments will disappear entirely over the next decade. Focus seems to be shifting more towards supporter engagement, which makes it clear that every type of contribution, whether that's money, time, voices, are all valued. But what about the role digital technologies will come to play? Will we continue to see an increasing number of people making more direct donations to individuals and communities through online crowdfunding? I'm going to chat to the Head of Policy at the Charities Aid Foundation, Rodri Davis, later on, to ask him about how technology is changing the way we fundraise. But first... I'm meeting with Paul Armadi, Chief Supporter Officer at the British Red Cross, and Shelter's Head of Philanthropy, Victoria Smith, to find out whether more time and energy being put into innovative new approaches means we'll soon see the total abandonment of traditional methods of fundraising. Paul, Victoria, thank you so much for joining me today. Despite the scandals in the past few years, voluntary income does seem to be holding up relatively well. And yet there's a feeling amongst fundraisers that something has to give. Uh, Paul, you've recently written that we're at the point of peak uncertainty. What makes you say that? So the reason why I said that is I think that we're at a moment where there is a peculiar mix of both external um, and internal trends which are impacting on our ability to uh, generate income. Uh, They're causing us to reframe the way that we want to work and engage with current and prospective supporters. And the most successful charities are those that are going to be able to A, recognise those changes, B, embrace them, and and three, I should say then, or C, potentially recognise that this is a jumping off point to a, a new paradigm. Paradigm. In terms of the external changes, I mean, what can I say? I only have to say the B word. Of it, right? <laughs> Don't <laughs> yeah. mention it. Uh, well, it's just impossible to avoid, isn't yeah. it, basically? So we're living in a time of, you know, unparalleled change. I mean, even if Brexit wasn't happening, we have to recognise the, you know, the rise of populism, the ways in which now I think populations across Europe and the world are a lot more cynical about institutions. They want different relationships with the establishment and, you know, arguably charities at times are part of that and then you know on a more societal level as it were what you've got is ever increasingly I think rising consumer expectations they want to reframe the way that they're working or engaging with organizations charities institutions so we're at the heart of that and and equally you know those two changes I guess or those two trends coalesce in terms of we charities the sector exists to drive social change and create social impact and actually the causes that we serve are are, are really impacted by all of the movements and the trends I've just talked about. That's really interesting and I think Victoria when we spoke recently you told me that you thought that the traditional model of big fundraising charities was broken and I was curious to find out you know what do you mean by that and what's the model that it needs to change into how does it need to adapt? I think that sounds very harsh when you say it like that. (laughs) You know I'm upset by that. Yeah I'm sure you are I'm really offended (laughs) but I think it it ties into again it's building on what we were just saying it's about that we need to work in different ways 
And the fact that we don't just want to work with donors anymore, it is about supporter engagement and it is about people being a donor and a supporter and a campaigner and an activist and people's voice mattering just as much as their money does. And also a recognition that people are expecting more from charities, particularly in terms of impact and driving change. And if we are at a plateau, that almost isn't acceptable anymore. We have to be seen as the change leaders and that puts an awful lot of pressure on. But it, it means that, you know, fundraising has to live up to those expectations. And I think also that includes removing silos because mm. historically charities can work in a very departmental fashion. And we need to break down those walls because, you know, fundraisers need to be at the heart of what's going on in finance just as much as what's happening in services and policy. And all the charities have very different structures. So you need to be kind of constantly moving amongst departments and thoughts and framing things in different ways. And so does that mean that kind of the traditional fundraising department is kind of doomed? Because, I mean, obviously, Paul, you don't have a job title as head of fundraising anymore, are you? You're head of supporter engagement, aren't you? Yeah. So I'm the, well, no, I'm the chief supporter officer. Sorry, chief supporter Uh, officer. Yeah. And it's a title that's created, uh, you know, not so much raised eyebrows, but people are always keen to explore what, you know, what lies beneath that. And in, in essence, it's actually quite straightforward. It's a recognition that actually what we want to do is work in ways that mobilise supporters, enable us to act as a conduit for them delivering on their passion and, and, and their, their their interests, but in ways that aren't necessarily just about income, not just about driving you know the latest or the, or, or the biggest direct debit, as it were. My role is to ensure that the British Red Cross is inspiring all the people that come into contact with us to mobilise their effort, their passion, their commitment, their interest in what we do, and translate that into practical ways in which they can connect with us. So that's what a chief supporter is. I am the voice of supporters throughout the organisation. I'm their advocate. I'm the person who is charged with ensuring that they have an absolutely great experience and we're enabling them to deliver on their aspiration to enable us to achieve our mission. And that's going to involve more than just looking at fundraising but working with other departments and that kind of thing is that, is that your, your point yeah, yeah and I, th- I think that will become more and more of a, of a common way of working mm. uh, it'll be different titles it'll be called different things in different organizations because it's got to be based on each charity's business model but I don't think the fundraising department is doomed but I do think we will see very different models emerging and I think that recognition that you need to bring in all factors of a supporter journey is something that can't be avoided and and that's what's at the heart of that. But equally, fundraising is the lifeblood of a charity so it's not going to go anywhere. It's always going to be required and needed. And sometimes it's very easy to kind of not recognise it as the important role that it is or Mm. perhaps that historical view where fundraisers are thought of as bucket collectors alone and volunteers and not a paid professional. That still exists in certain places and I think we've got to go some way to moving it forward and recognising the complexity of it. We've talked a little bit about kind of the the changing relationship with supporters and donors. What does this mean about the relationship for beneficiary? Because I'm I'm hearing a lot of people be quite uncomfortable with the the term beneficiary and is that itself a problem? At times within our organisation we do use the term beneficiaries Mm. interchangeably with service users. Words matter definitely and labels matter but I think beneath your question is the is the recognition or um, an attempt to uh, you know assess what is the changing relationship between the organisation and the people that it's working with and the people that it exists to serve? I think the kind of the, the trend that 
I have observed, and I think is, dare I say, overdue, is one around the recognition that services uh, or the offerings of a charity need to be co-created and we have an expectation, or, or, you know, so increasingly we're seeing the expectation on behalf of funders that the service that they're asking them to fund has that element, or not even an element, but is embedded in co-creation, service users or beneficiaries, people who are actually, you are working with to deliver your mission, have a say in what you're actually constructing and delivering, because that feels so much more authentic, it feels so much more that there's actually a partnership that is at the heart of what is what is taking place and you know that's very much one of the trends that I wish that um, I mentioned when I you know in my in my opening remarks and I, I think the most effective charities are those that are recognizing that they are generating services that are genuinely what the people that they're hoping to work with want need and are asking for yeah and I can only echo that I mean I can see why beneficiary can feel like a very cold term, but equally you've got to sometimes use terms that do address a collective and it's very hard mm. to you know, identify a group of very diverse people using very diverse services at times. So similarly, Shelter will use the term beneficiary or service user interchangeably. And I think there is some work that we could all perhaps do around coming up with something that we would sound better and sound more human but mm. I don't know that there is a, an answer to that at the moment. <laughs> we I'm, don't know what the word is yes, yet. Yes, <laughs> I think I've heard many debates on it but I don't think I've yeah come to a conclusion on it. But the, the reality is that it, it is the co-collaboration and design of services that is the most important factor in all of it and ensuring that whether you call them a beneficiary or a service user or something else, that their voice is heard and that we're not designing programmes based on we know best as a charity, that it is informed from the front line and from people who, who need the services. Because very often, like, we found some fantastic things that we just would not have considered without using frontline service users and including them. And then very often they'll become peer mentors or part of the services themselves and I think that's a fantastic chain of things to be able to demonstrate impact as well. I, I mean I, I couldn't agree with you more I think that one of the things though that will emerge from this is sometimes what that forces is to, you know charities and organisations to make some difficult decisions or to actually challenge themselves because one of my passions is around inclusion and diversity and you know within my organisation we're having a really healthy debate about what that means and how that will translate into exactly what you've been describing in terms of service design as well. We used again in that whole label space you know can describe communities as hard to reach well if you're designing a service for a hard to reach community if you're if you're not authentically trying to capture and understand what that community wants how are you in a position to in any way be confident that what you're delivering or what you're offering up is what is required or what is needed how what's your bridge into that community as well or into mm. that group so this is forcing organizations not just the British Red Cross, to really think about that paradigm shift and how they equip themselves to, to make it. And that is interesting because traditionally smaller charities often have that kind of advantage that they are yeah. closer to the community yeah, they work absolutely. with. absolutely. And, and so we're talking about them being, you know, charities need to be more agile, and yeah. of course, if you've got a smaller... So it, what does the uncertainty in the changing fundraising landscape mean for smaller charities? Has their day come or are they going to struggle, do we think? I think there's a real opportunity to be had, um, especially with the feeling of, of populism and localism as a movement, I think there is real opportunity for, for small charities to connect with their communities even more and harness that support in a way that larger charities will struggle with because there is a lot of criticism and negative viewpoint around charities becoming so large they become corporate. Mm. You know, 
there are many arguments as to why that's beneficial as well, economies of scale and ensuring that you can deliver, you know, across the board in consistency. But I think that there is a time now more than ever that small charities can come to the forefront. Um, but there are complications, you know, I won't go into data protection now, that's a whole other complication, <laughs> but there are lots of things that will hinder that sort of movement and mobilisation of people as well. So. So what will the fundraising landscape look like in 10 or 15 years' time, do we think? I think, building on our comments earlier, there will be very, very different looks and feels to different fundraising departments, and I think that's probably a great thing. I think you'll have very different models that include things like uh, social enterprise, and it will feel much more integrated with service design and the whole piece around impact and communications will feel intertwined and I certainly feel that that's a, a real positive. It will have challenges for sure but but I think that's that's the direction of travel for, for most of the charities that I encounter and have been a part of. It would be brilliant to be in a position to definitively answer what the world will look <laughs> yeah. like in 10 or 15 years because, um, you know, I will... I don't know what it looks like next year. No, absolutely. And I was going to say, if you do, can you choose my lottery numbers for me? Because <laughs> I'd be really, really grateful. But I mean, I think, you know, I imagine even over the next decade, decade and a half, you know, there will still be people who are taking out direct debits and, you know, who are recruited on a long-standing kind of commitment to a cause, as it were. But I think that we'll be a lot more sophisticated in terms of how we're engaging with our supporter base, as it were. I think you'll see metrics such as loyalty, lifetime value, engagement. I think there'll be a much greater understanding about what we mean by those terms and our ability to measure them. We'll be in a situation in which technology, I think, will be very much driving the way in which people are engaging with us and, and potentially we would have found a way to truly monetize our online traffic and things like that as <laughs> yeah. well. You know, often we, we, we cite technology as a silver bullet, but it's, I think, not necessarily always that case. But yeah, definitely will it be can a... disrupt as much as it can uh, help. Yeah. And I think uh, one of the key points with that is perhaps things like cryptocurrency and online finances, I think that's definitely going to be a shift and an adaptation that we're going to perhaps have to get used to and what that really means. And at the moment, it hasn't matured enough for mm. us to kind of invest or think about it as an actual income stream. But in the future, I'm sure that that will emerge as something we're going to have to get to grips with. Do you think, though, one of the things that I don't know, I don't know I'm speaking on a personal basis, whether it's a, a, a swear word or, or, or a really good thing, but, but disintermediation, so the role of kind of large organisations when we know that actually increasingly people want to kind of crowdsource their solutions mm. and, and, and don't necessarily want to channel it, channel it through through large or indeed even small organisations. So, you know, citizen activism and what have you. Is that something that we feel is, is genuinely kind of a meaningful thing that will change the way that organisations, large or small, operate? I think it has got the power to. Yeah. It, it will really depend a bit like like many things as to whether it takes hold yeah. or whether it is just the flash in the pan yeah. moment of there were one or two great examples of yeah. it and it never really yeah. capitalised. I think some of that will depend on if the systems keep pace with the ideas. So if the technology improves enough to truly do the things that people envisage, mm. like the blockchain ideas yeah. in Africa and yeah. really, you know, transferring money and it actually becomes a scalable idea, then then possibly, yeah. you know, it really could see a different way of people engaging across the world. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, you don't need the middleman anymore. Yeah. yeah. And within that then, because I think that's the thing I find quite interesting is, is what's the space for charities expertise then? Because, OK, you can directly mm. fund somebody across the world if you want, but do you know that the money's going 
you know, to the right place or is being spent in the best possible way to make the biggest impact there? How do, how do charities make their expertise of use in that context, do we think? Well, I think that that is the key and that's where charities will still have a role. It might look a slightly different role because it might not be as actively delivering something. But I do think that that expertise and, and bringing together a collective voice sometimes you know, is, is crucial because you can have a very narrow viewpoint on one perspective, but you won't have eyes on everything that a charity might have. And, and I don't foresee a, a time where that won't be a useful or necessary thing. I think, you know, we're, we're speculating necessarily about what the future is going to look like, the role of technology, the ways in which people are giving and what have you. And, you know, that's what makes the future so exciting. It's yeah. uncertain nature as well. But I think one thing that I do feel relatively confident about predicting is that, you know, organisations such as our own and, you know, charities per se will get better at reporting and recording their impact because I know, mm. I believe, I'm confident about the fact that that is an increasingly you know, definitive consumer expectation that people want to know where their money is being spent. It is actually generally, genuinely reaching its end user yeah. um, and is being put to good use as well. And and, and organisations, large and small, I think, have to get increasingly effective at that. And I also think that while nothing is certain, everything really is possible. And I think <laughs> if we do harness that sort of, it, it's it's the cheesy inspirational line, but it's very, very true. There are, there are opportunities for each charity to carve its own space. Um, and, and I think that, that that will be telling in time to come from the leadership as to, as to what direction each big charity and small takes. Nice. So I, that's an interesting one for me because um, even though uh, philosophically I yeah. accept that, I do wonder whether, you know, something radical within, within the, um, you know, the charity space was the recognition that there is a huge amount of capacity and that, you know, I mean, there is that notion or that vision about, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom, as it were. But equally, that means a thousand flowers or organisations with HR, you know, with, with mm-hmm. HR departments, with, you know, back office functionality that potentially could be duplicated. So I, I'm just kind of asking myself, I guess, and asking us whether that isn't something that, you know, ultimately you know, an ever-challenging external environment might really force us to look into, you know, look in the eye, as it were. The thing I was going to ask you a little bit more about to kind of circle back to was kind of the techniques that we're going to say. We've talked about a bit more about technology, but do we think that techniques like door-to-door fundraising or street fundraising, do we think they're going to survive in, in those forms or do you think we're going to see sort of different ways of, of, of engaging people initially? I mean, I just will just say really, because I feel quite strongly about this. So we're an organisation, the British Red Cross, that, you know, has had a superb track record in those direct dialogue, you know, fundraising techniques. And we know that at times people have thoughts and observations about how elegant or how effective those channels and those techniques are. But for me, you know, great fundraising ultimately is about having great conversations with mm-hmm. people about what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve and how they can support that um, ultimately. And so that's what, for me, commends, you know, face-to-face, door-to-door or what have you. Um, in terms of techniques and its evolution, what I suspect that we will find is that we will still have space for those because they're really important, you know, um, as I said, those conversations. But we'll find ways in which we move those to other platforms as well, such as, I don't know, WhatsApp, you know, or what have you. But that space in which I get, or I say, my organisation gets the opportunity to engage and have a conversation. We need to find ways in which that we preserve that as an aspiration. Yeah, because at the heart of um, good fundraising is storytelling and I I don't think you can ever lose the face-to-face element of that. It's really, really important. 
know, similarly, Shelter has got a strong face-to-face fundraising team that are in-house and they do a great job and we often get really positive feedback about the stories they tell and the way they engage people in the cause. Um, So I don't think that necessarily that has to go. I think the focus is on relationship building and moving perhaps away from a product and framework focus of fundraising and more concentrating on the relationships, the shared values and the, and, and the being mission driven and, and creating this sort of real engagement piece. And I think that will affect particularly some of the more transactional, lower end approaches. But mm. I, I still think there will be a place for them. It will just be a slightly different way we communicate more so than they won't exist altogether. And we did touch, and I think, Victoria, earlier you were talking about social enterprises and um, how there's going to be more room for those. Do you think we're going to see kind of this blurring between what's a charity and what's a company as kind of the public expects companies to behave better as well. So companies are getting more into that social improvement space. And do you think we're going to see a blurring of those lines? I think we already are. I mean, we're seeing B Corps established now mm-hmm. and, and they're directly moving into service delivery in certain places. So, you know, that that places, I think it's Unilever are now a B Corp. So, and they will actually deliver, you know, international development style work. Is that the right thing to do? Possibly, because I I don't think people care about the structure. I think they care about the impact and making sure that things are done well. But I think there is a whole question around ethics and morals when you bring profit into things. The reason people tend to trust charity more is is the assumption of not-for-profit and that everything is recycled back into the cause. So I think that there is a spectrum for everything um, and it will get slightly more blurred, especially with a younger millennial ge- generation wanting to do social good but still earn. Yeah, and that is the space for the social enterprise. Yeah, w- whether that ever takes hold as a, as a more common sort of literally treading on the charity spaces is, is is quite a different question, I guess. I mean, we are seeing, you know, the ongoing emergence of purpose driven companies and organisations. But I think that what it does is it, it encourages us as a, as a charity sector to think about how we respond to that and position ourselves as the pure delivery of somebody's aspiration to deliver social good and social impact. So absolutely, long may it continue in a way if it forces yeah. us to really ensure that we are delivering at our best. And it also, you know, I, I've got to say a welcome ethical business as well. There's a place for all of it. Absolutely. It's just finding the, the market for each one, I guess. Yeah. Paul, Victoria, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. This month, I went to the Institute of Fundraising's major donor conference. With so many knowledgeable people around, I was really keen to find out what they feel the biggest issues and challenges facing major donor fundraising at the moment are. My name is Divya O'Connor. I am the chief executive of the charity Children with Cancer UK. So some of the big issues and challenges is the move from more peer-to-peer ask to actually being a lot more structured in terms of the fundraising ask. I think we are very much moving away from being able to rely on supporters and indeed having sort of trustees and development boards being able to generate those peer asks to an environment where especially major donors are a lot more discerning about their giving, they expect evidence of impact and it is slightly shifting the relationship uh, in terms of the expectation from the charity by the donor. I'm Michael Weger. I'm the Chief Executive of the United Jewish Israel Appeal. Quality of major gifts fundraisers is a big issue and how we really keep and retain, train and retain first class professionals is key. In our sector, the ageing 
population of major gift owners is a big challenge and how we therefore work with the next generation to bring them into the field. I'm Wendy Barsden, I work for a hospice in Worthing called St Barnabas House um, and I'm in charge of community fundraising, I do major donors and corporates as well, so I manage those teams. So. It's difficult to say, I mean I don't want to mention the word Brexit, but that's... <laughs> I know, because that's sort of that big question that everybody has for looming. We all kind of put it in all our sort of uh, strategy documents, going, well, you know, what's that going to mean? So that could be a thorn, but quite quite how that will look at the moment, we don't know. But I think the uncertainty for everybody makes things difficult. My name's Marie Peacock, and I'm the Deputy Head of Operations at Rape Crisis England and Wales. I think the major challenges at the moment are that there's a lot of people trying to go for the same pound and I think making your charity stand out and engaging people appropriately is, is a major challenge because yeah. everyone's trying to do the same thing, we're all trying to tell the same stories and get the same, same bit of attention. Beth Breeze and I'm Director of the Centre for Philanthropy at the University of Kent. What I'm hearing today is that people are looking for something new. I think we spent a lot of years trying to capture what is best practice. Do we know um, what actually is this, this emerging profession? Is it even a profession? And what I'm hearing today is a real appetite for the next phase. So where are we going in the future? Can we keep relying on the same old models and mechanisms and technologies? And I think most people in the room here are looking for the new ideas, the new kinds of donors, uh, the new approaches. And I think they'll find that more enjoyable. Mm. I think it will help to rehabilitate fundraising, which has taken a lot of knocks in the past, and make it more acceptable to the wider charity community, like trustees and CEOs, who are also put off by the idea of fundraising. So I think it's quite an exciting time to be a fundraiser. Something we touched on earlier with Paul Amadi and Victoria Smith was the role technology might play in the future of fundraising. I wanted to hear more about some of the exciting digital developments that are happening, so I spoke to Rodri Davis, Head of Policy at the Charities Aid Foundation, and asked him what he thinks are the big developments that are going to happen this year. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a few things. There's some that, that sort of are already happening and then some that are probably kind of longer-term things that we might see starting to trickle through this year. I mean, one, one that springs to mind is that I think kind of commercial payment platforms are going to be making more moves to allow charitable donations through them. So we've, we've seen it quite a bit already with the announcement at so the end of last year about Android Pay allowing donations. And actually, I think the, the flip side in a way is, you know, the news this week that BT my donate to shut down, you know, perhaps suggests that there's going to be uh, a smaller market for kind of dedicated charitable donation platforms. So actually there's more space for commercial payment providers to, to do that. So I think that's one thing we'll see. I think a linked thing to that is a growth in uh, donations through voice operated assistance and kind of conversational AI. So we've seen Alexa in the US allow donations to quite a number of organisations. And I think British Heart Foundation became the first charity in the UK to take donations in that way and I think that'll be a huge growth area. I think another thing linked to that is not so much taking donations but I think lots of charities are already experimenting with using chatbots, either site-specific ones or through voice-operated assistance and I think there'll be some interesting experiments there, some that might be fundraising focused and others might be kind of more around delivering services and, and kind of advice to, to people with, with conditions or kind of looking for information. I, I suspect there 
might be uh, even more focus on virtual reality and probably augmented reality as well. So, you know, virtual reality is the kind of full immersion in digital worlds. Augmented is overlaying elements of it on, on kind of real experience. And we've seen some quite interesting experiments using it for awareness raising and empathy building and fundraising. Yeah. Uh, and actually, as, as the technology gets better and the cost of it comes down, I think people will kind of latch onto the idea that it's potentially a very powerful way of building connections with donors. So I, I think that, that again goes to something broader, which is I think there, there'll be quite a focus on using digital tools for storytelling. I, I think my sense is that the last couple of years, there's been a little bit of a move away from the idea that it's all about hard measures of you know of impact and uh, kind of return on social return on investment and these things and although that's still going on I think there's been a move back to the idea that actually what most normal donors want is just compelling stories about how their donations are having a, a sort of real impact on the problems they want to be addressed and actually digital tools are amazing for that whether that's something as fancy as virtual reality or just using kind of social media platforms to tell those stories uh, directly to people so I, I think that's somewhere where fundraisers will probably be putting quite a lot of emphasis and I need to give an idea yeah, just, just sorry, just yeah. to give an idea of, of what we're yeah, talking about with the virtual reality. So that would be things like um, the Red Cross did a couple of years ago, where they kind of got people inside Syria to kind of film in 360 degrees what the city looked like, didn't they? And then they were sort of putting it on a video on headset, so people could, people in sort of shopping centres in Britain could kind of look around and see what it looked like in Damascus or, or in Syria or somewhere. And, you know, this, some some of the fundraising uses, I think, have been, as you say, like that, giving people the experience. I think Charity Water did a very sort of slick one as well, where you got the experience of a, a girl in uh, Eritrea, I think, going out to, and, like, the challenge she had during the day trying to, to get water. Um, there, there are some other ones as well, which I think are less about direct fundraising and more about awareness raising around conditions. So the Nat National Autistic Society had a very interesting one, giving people a sort of insight into what um, sensory overloads like for people with autism mm. and similarly there's there's one uh, walk through dementia as well similarly giving people a, a sense of what challenges people with dementia might face so and obviously they're not designed specifically as fundraising tools but the more that you build people's understanding of kinds of challenges you would hope, you would sort of expect that they would engage more with the issues and then i guess the, the other place where it's slight, slightly more of a wild card this one but i'm i'm really interested to see what happens because uh, it's a world i don't really understand that well is around the the kind of the gaming industry and the gaming community so we've seen this huge growth of the idea of esports which is kind of competitive online gaming and it, there's loads of money in it and actually we're starting to see some quite interesting signs that people in those communities are looking to kind of new forms of donation so in-game donations kind of you know lo low friction that kind of micro donations but also the donations are sort of new types of digital assets so the, the sort of things that you can trade within the game they, they're called skins so it's kind of things that you can equip your characters with and things like this these things actually swap, change hands for lots and lots of money and it'll be really interesting to see whether charities kind of cotton onto this and try and tap into what is potentially a huge new market for, for fundraising. So what would be your kind of top tips for charities that are looking to kind of take advantage of, of uh, sort of the digital space or kind of technological developments over the next year? I think, you know, the, the challenge always for, for charities, I guess, is 
they're, they're not usually early adopters of this sort of technology, uh, you know, cutting edge technology, and it can seem a bit off-putting, overly complex, as if it'll take a lot of resource. Actually, you know, there are some really great resources out there for existing technologies like social media, lots of good digital agencies trying to work to help charities, large and small, to harness them. But also, I think around things like artificial intelligence, actually, you know, Microsoft have got a good program giving pro bono help to, to charities who want to engage with it, Google likewise. So, so I think, you know, there is quite a lot of support and resources out there, even for organizations with, you know, not a lot of money. So they don't have, I don't think they have to feel as though they need to put all their eggs in one basket or kind of develop all these skills in-house. Actually, there are people out there who can partner with them or just provide them with the, the knowledge and skills that they need. So I guess it's sort of deciding what you as a charity want to focus on and then trying to think about how technology can help you to do that rather than starting with, oh, we want to use this technology and then working back from there. We'll be back with another episode next month, so make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Thank you again to Paul Armadi, Victoria Smith and Rodri Davies for joining me, to the producer Anushka Tate for Rethink Audio, and to you for listening. <laughs>